0: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Is that a little loud? It's good? Okay. Can you handle it for an hour or two? (laughs) Just kidding. Well, actually, we'll see. (laughs) We'll see. Nah, I'm kidding. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We have been considering together the book of 1 Corinthians for several months, and it's been a wonderful journey. And this morning we will finish chapter 13, so we will read beginning in verse 8 through verse 13. Have you found it? Let's read together, beginning in verse 8. Listen to the reading of God's word. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. is love. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. I think one of the problems that the Corinthians had is the problem that we normally have, and is, and is this. It may not sound like a big deal, but I think it is. They lost perspective. As I was reading this text and meditating and studying it, the word perspective kept coming back to my mind. Perspective. I think the Corinthians lost Perspective. Now, what is perspective? Perspective, as defined by the dictionary, is as follows the capacity to view things in their true relations or relative importance. And I think this is an important word if we're going to understand these verses. Perspective is about comparing things. With the purpose of understanding their true value in relation to each other. Or to put it yet another way perspective is about the ability to capture the actual worth of something in light of the worth of something else. That is perspective. Perspective is about asking the following question How important is this in light of this? That is perspective. I think. The Corinthians lost perspective. Just this week, I lost my perspective for a few very important seconds. My wife sent me to Brookshire's, because I don't go to Brookshire's unless I am sent <laughs> by my wife. I got in my car. I got out of the, the, the store, got in my car, started driving home. And uh, I knew that the, the ride right home would be short, right, because it's Glen Rose. So every car ride is, is short, so I knew that it was gonna be short, but I really wanted to listen to this one song that I had in mind. So I started driving, got on 67, and I thought to myself, I, I can do this. I can, I can, I can do it. So I pulled out my phone. While I was driving, I pulled out my phone, I started looking for the song in my in my phone, I found the song, I hit play, and the song came on. And then I realized something. I lifted up my head and I realized that. For about five seconds and several feet, I lost complete sight of the outside. I don't know if that has ever happened to you. You're just so caught up in the moment and doing this little thing, this little task. And I completely forgot about the outside. I was so focused on finding this song that I forgot about something a little more important. How about my life, right? Right? My life, I completely lost sight of my life. I I thought to myself right at that moment, I thought, do you realize, Jonathan, that uh, those five seconds could have killed you? Those five seconds could have killed me. It is amazing how quickly we can lose perspective. It is amazing how quickly we can lose sight of what really matters because we are focusing on lesser things. When we lose perspective, there is potential for disaster, And a wrong perspective can lead to wrong actions. So going back to our text, why am I telling you this? Because I think the Corinthians lost perspective in the sense that they got caught up in pursuing lesser things, namely, what? You know, spiritual gifts to the exclusion of the greater thing. Namely, and you know it by now, love. And so Paul will rearrange their perspective. He will correct their perspective and help them see that they're looking at things from the wrong point of view. And so Paul will take love and spiritual gifts and put them in perspective. In other words, Paul will take the virtue of love and spiritual things and bring up to the surface, their true relation and importance relative to each other. So the question that Paul will ask the Corinthians and by default ourselves this morning is the following. How important are the gifts, the spiritual gifts in light of love? That's really the bottom line question. Should you really be all caught up in pursuing the gifts? If that means you will exclude love, that is the question that we are answering this morning. How will Paul do this? In these few verses, he will do four things. And I I know I'm giving you the outline. I don't know if that's a good thing to do or not, but I'm gonna give you the outline. Number one, he will remind the Corinthians of the eternality of love. The eternality of love. Number two, Paul will explain the limitations of spiritual gifts. Number three, he will provide two illustrations to strengthen his argument. And number four, he will draw a final conclusion. That is how Paul will do it. So let me go to my first point this morning, Paul's first point, as he's arguing for the supremacy of love, which we started last week. And the first point is this. Love is the more excellent way because of its eternality. Paul begins verse 8 the following way. Love never ends. That statement is loaded. It is very Loaded. Love has the unique quality of being unending. Now, I know that when you think of the word never ends, you're normally thinking about something indicative of the future. But love is more than just unending. Do you realize that? Love has no beginning. It's not only that love never ends, love never begins. Have you thought about that? Just as God is eternal, So love also is eternal. Love has no beginning. It has no end. Now let's consider this thought a little further. Does love exist as an independent, independent virtue? Is love created? Is love created? Is it, is it, is love a created virtue? Here's where theology really matters. Theology really matters Do not be confused at this point. What Paul is saying, and and what Paul is not saying, what I'm not saying is that love as a virtue has existed for all eternity independently from God, as though love is its own thing. As though love exists apart from God. That would be a mistake. What I do have in mind is the following. Love is eternal as God is eternal because God is love. God is love. Love does not exist apart from or independent from God. Love is the very essence of God. God didn't create love for God is love. And he has been so eternally. There has never been a moment in time or outside of time in eternity past. If we can say that, I don't know if we can say that, but in eternity past in which God didn't love, there has never been a moment. Therefore, there will never be a moment in time or outside of time in eternity future in which God will not love. Therefore, love never begins. Love never begins and love never ends. Love cannot be detached from the nature of God as though it is something distinct from the character of God. You cannot do that. In fact, love is so timeless So timeless that even when there were no humans in existence before the foundation of the world and even before the creation of time itself, love was there. How do we know this? We know this because of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father has always loved the Son and the Son has always loved The Father and the Holy Spirit has always loved both the Father and the Son. Even if there never was an object outside of God upon whom God could pour out his love, God is love eternally. The communion between God, the Father, God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is a communion of perfect, eternal love. So we're going to answer a very important question here. God didn't create the world because he was lonely. God did not create the world because he was lonely. God was not desperate for companionship. One theologian put it this way, and I quote, the triune God could be without the world. No perfection of God could be lost. No triune bliss compromised were the world not to exist. No enhancement of God is achieved by the world's existence. End quote. So, The answer is no, God has never needed anyone else in order to love. God created you and I for our benefit, not for his. God is love. And God created you and I so that we might experience, know, and enjoy his love. Therefore, love never ends. Love has always been active, making inroads into human existence from the very beginning. This is why in the Old Testament, as the Jewish people were collecting the, the sacred writings, we see that the one divine attribute emphasized the most. Guess which one it is? I've been giving you clues all this time. You should know this one pretty simple, right? Think about King David in First, first Chronicles chapter 16, 16 verse 34. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 136, every single verse in Psalm 136 is about the steadfast love of the Lord, which endures forever. Love never ends. Love has no beginning and it will never have an end. Now, why does Paul begin this section in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8? Why does he begin with that little expression, love never ends? I think he did it because the Corinthians needed to be reminded of the everlastingness of love, the endurance of love, the eternal duration of love, the permanence of love. And in Paul's mind this one quality of love will be the solution to all their problems. It is understanding the fact that love is eternal, but why is this so important? Why is this the solution? Just think about it for a moment. Love is eternal. Love has always been, and it will always be, but this is not true of spiritual gifts. It's kind of a simple point, isn't it? So think about it. After expanding their view of love, expanding it, saying love never ends. He will now deflate their view of spiritual gifts. Not because gifts are unimportant, but the Corinthians were making way too much of the spiritual gifts. This is a very critical moment in the whole letter, and I hope you know why. Spiritual gifts, where a source of contention and fighting and a um, lot of tension in the Corinthian church. So you can't forget that. Therefore, what Paul is going to do right now is to set the importance of spiritual gifts relative to love, relative to love. This is his main point. He expands their view of love. He says love never ends. And now he goes into the limitations of spiritual Gifts, limitations of spiritual gifts. There are two main limitations when it comes to spiritual gifts. The first one is is this, is a time limitation. Paul makes this very clear. Gifts, spiritual gifts are transient. Listen to verse 8b, the second half of the verse. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away away so you see what he's doing he's expanding their view of love he's saying love never ends and now let's talk about the spiritual gifts the things that you love they have the first limitation is time they're transient and i love how paul argues with such powerful yet simple logic in essence his first step in deflating their view of the gifts is to tell them that these things which they so earnestly desire will someday be rendered inactive inoperative And useless. Just think about it, Corinthians. Just think about it, Grace Community Church. These things are bound by time. Therefore, they are bound to die. They will disappear. Now, I want you to notice something. Go to verse 8. I want you to notice something about the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues. We're not going to go into detail. Um, But notice, notice something about the gift of tongues. It says that they will cease. Whereas when it comes to prophecies and knowledge, they will pass away. He uses a different word to speak about the ending of the gift of tongues. It is interesting um, because it seems like what Paul is doing here is to say that the first of these three gifts, knowledge, prophecies, and tongues, the first one that will go away is tongues. And the reason to conclude that is because of the verb he uses to explain the ending of the gifts of tongues. In the original Greek, I, I, when I went to seminary, I had to actually write a paper on this one passage. And uh, so I had to kind of get into it and go deeply. And the word cease is written in the middle voice. I know that's really interesting, isn't it? In the middle voice, you're like, yes, I, I'm, I'm glad I know that. As opposed to the active or the passive voice, the Greek language has a middle voice. Now, there's something interesting about the middle voice. When a verb is written in the middle voice, it means that whatever the, the, the person is doing, it will end by itself. It will end by itself. So the, ver- the person is not, the subject is not performing the action. He's not being acted upon as the passive or performing the action as in the active. But it means that whatever is happening, it will end by itself. Think about the middle voice, and I know I'm taking a little bit of time here. Think about the middle voice in the Greek as you would think of a music box, right? What happens with a music box? You have to crank the handle, right? Several times, and then you leave it alone, and then music place right but then eventually the music what happens it stops right we all know music box Uh, and and you don't have to touch it you don't have to mess with it it eventually simply stops that's the idea of the middle voice in the greek language when it talks about tongues it conveys the idea that god gave the gifts of tongues to the church for a specific purpose god set the gift in motion but it will eventually stop and I think it already has, in my humble opinion, it already stopped. But then there are other, there are two other gifts and the gift of knowledge and the gift of prophecy. In my humble opinion, I think they are is still working. The gift of prophecy is the gift of speaking the truth, speaking the truth to God, God's people. So the gift of prophecy is not just foretelling the future as the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles did, but it is about foretelling the truth. So think about Moses. Why was Moses a prophet? Moses was considered a prophet not just because he spoke about future events, but also because he constantly reminded the people of God of things of the past. So do we have the gift of prophecy? I believe we do. Every time a man of God stands before the people of God to speak on behalf of God, he is prophesying. And yes, as Pastor Stephen reminded us a few m- months ago, it's all supernatural. It is the gift of the Spirit. What about the second gift, the, the gift of knowledge? Paul says that knowledge will pass away eventually. What is he talking about? Well, the first thing we need to clarify is that knowledge in a comprehensive way will never pass away. You understand that, right? In other words, Paul is not saying that in heaven, we will all be ignorant. He's not saying that. What, what, what is this thing that will pass away? It is the gift of knowledge. Go to chapter 12, verse 8. In chapter 12, verse 8, he talks about knowledge as a gift. Listen to this. For to one... Chapter 12, verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom or the word of wisdom, and to another the utterance or the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. So this is the thing that will pass away, not knowledge in a comprehensive way. Because then if you go back to chapter 13, verse 12, he says that we will know. In fact, we will know fully. So the thing that will pass away, I believe, is the gift of knowledge or knowledge as a gift. This is also related to the gift of teaching. One commentator called the gift of knowledge, the foundation of the office of the teacher. What is this? This is the ability to discern God's truth, to understand it so that you might explain it. This is why God has given the church as a gift, some to be teachers. And so they, they, they have given the gift of knowledge in order to discern and understand the truth of scriptures so that they might explain it. And so these gifts are important to the life of the church. They are. This is how we grow in our Christian faith. Paul is not diminishing the, important of, the importance of the gifts. They should not be neglected. But they will pass away. There will come a time in which... These things will no longer be needed, but love, love never ends. Perspective, perspective. What is the second limitation of gifts? The first one is about time. The second limitation of gifts is a quality limitation, quality limitation. Spiritual gifts are incomplete, are incompletes. Listen to verse nine and 10. For we know in parts and we prophesy in parts, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Not only are the gifts of knowledge and prophecy limited in terms of times, but they're also limited in terms of quality. Even the best of our knowledge and the best of our preaching can offer but an imperfect picture of a perfect reality. You have never listened to a, listened to a perfect sermon You have never met a theologian with perfect theology. Nobody in this church has perfect theology. Even our best discernment is, is but limited compared to what we will have when the perfect comes. We will know fully when the perfect comes. Now, what is the perfect? What is the perfect? I'm not going to ask you for opinions right now. That could get messy, but what is the perfect? Well, there are different interpretations and ideas, Uh, in, In my, in my humble opinion, again, what I believe Paul is saying is if you go back to verse eight, love never ends. I think that this is the controlling theme of this section. So what is Paul thinking about? Paul has eternity in mind. He said, Paul, love never ends. So he's thinking about eternity, That tells me that the perfect is the consummation of all things. The coming of God's kingdom, the end of the ages, the state of eternal bliss in the presence of God. When that comes, Paul says, we will know fully. And what was needed here on earth will no longer be needed in heaven. Now, pay attention to this. Does that mean that we will no longer learn anything in heaven No, in fact, I believe what makes heaven heaven is that we will spend eternity learning about God. This is what makes heaven heaven. And you will never be able to exhaust the amount of knowledge that you can have about God because he's an eternal being. And so you will learn and learn and learn and delight yourself in the knowledge of God. The main difference will be that our knowledge will be sinless. Sinless knowledge. We can't even imagine what that looks like. But our knowledge will be sinless. And now he will prove his points of the insufficiency of the spiritual gifts by giving us two illustrations. Two illustrations. Go to verse 11. The first one is about childhood versus manhood. To continue to prove his point. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. What is the point of verse 11? Isn't it an interesting verse? Some people think that Paul is sort of calling the Corinthians to maturity. Okay, stop being children about these things. And there is a sense in which he does that in chapter 3. He tells them, I cannot speak to you as spiritual people because you are infants. And then in chapter 14, he tells them to stop being children. But I don't think that's the point of verse 11. You know why? Because Paul is thinking about eternity. And so I think verse 11 is is an illustration to strengthen the argument. The point about this illustration is to talk about the progress in our knowledge. Think of it like, like this. Think about a little child. A little child. I see many in our room here. Think about this. The little kid goes outside and he looks at the stars. He sees the stars and he understands the stars, but he does so as a little kid. He can see them and there is a mental process that goes through his mind as he tries to understand them, but he does so as a little child, right? But think about what happens when a 60-year-old astronomer goes outside and he looks at the stars. He's looking at the same stars, but he understands them differently. He knows them differently. He even appreciates them differently. And I think what Paul is doing in verse 11 is comparing our current knowledge to the knowledge of a child. I know that's a little humiliating. He's comparing our current knowledge to the knowledge of a child. So, Paul, what he's saying in verse 11 is this at this point in human history, in the history of redemption, we can only look at spiritual things and understand them in a very elementary way. So, the point of verse 11 is to say that even the best of our knowledge is but elementary, it is, an, it is elementary in nature, and, and that is the nature of our current gifts. Someday, when the perfect comes, when the consummation comes, this this present knowledge will give way to a fully mature knowledge. And I think that's the point of his illustration. And this is so good. You know why? This is such a good illustration. You know why? Remember what he said in chapter 8, verse 1? I'm sure you all remember. In chapter 8, verse 1, he said, knowledge puffs up, right? Puffs up. And so what I think Paul is doing is, is... is this, he's saying, knowledge shouldn't puff up because you know little anyway. You know very little. Why are you boasting about your knowledge? Compared to when the perfect comes, you know right now like a little kid. Someday your knowledge will be fully mature, but you have nothing to boast about. Think about the second illustration in verse 12. Seeing in a mirror, versus seeing directly verse 12 for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face now i know in part then i shall know fully even as i have been fully known verse 12 in my mind confirms what i just told you about verse 11 he is illustrating the imperfect nature of our current knowledge it is real knowledge but it is imperfect nonetheless the city of Corinth was known for making mirrors. They were nothing like what we have today, of course. They were made out of metal, and it was very dark, and it gave only a very unclear picture. Think about this. If verse 11 was about the elementary nature of our gifts, verse 12 is about the, listen to this word, enigmatic nature of our knowledge. In fact, look at the word in verse 12. We see in a mirror, how dimly, right? That word is the word enigma. Enigma. Do we understand the atonement of Jesus Christ? We do. We have real knowledge of the atonement of Jesus Christ, his death. Do we understand something of the attribute of holiness Yes, we do. But do we understand the full implications of any of that? No. And so what is Paul doing here? He's talking about the fact that whatever we know is still enigmatic. It's somewhat obscure. It's in riddles. And Paul is saying, imagine someone is standing behind you. This is what he's telling them in verse 12. Imagine someone is standing behind you. And you try to look at that person's face using a mirror. In their mind, they're thinking about a metal. You can barely see anything. Think about that. There's a person standing behind you. You're trying to look at their, their face looking through a mirror. You may be able to determine the shape of the face, the form of the face, but you can't see details. You can't really appreciate the face. No, what you would do, you would drop the mirror, forget about the mirror, and look at them directly. Why? Because nothing can replace direct actual sight. And the point of the illustration is to tell the Corinthians that even with their amazing gifts of knowledge, what they knew, though true, was but a dim, unclear, obscure picture of spiritual things. Your current knowledge, Paul says, is like looking through a mirror. What do you think was Paul thinking? What was Paul's scripture? What was his Bible? Thank you, Norm. The Old Testament. I think Paul was thinking about Moses. Do you remember what the Bible says about Moses in Exodus? I'm sorry, in Numbers chapter 12. Think about what God said about Moses. This is what God said. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth. Then in the Septuagint, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, that came to be translated as face to face. Clearly, not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. I think Paul was thinking about Moses. Someday, we will be like Moses And so Paul is telling them, you guys may have great gifts of knowledge and prophecy, but someday we won't need them anymore because, get this, we will walk by sight and no longer by faith. Now, we walk by faith, not by sight. Someday we will walk by sight and no longer by faith. I can't Wait for that moment when I finally see him face to face. And then in chapter, in verse 12, he says, I have been fully known. I will talk a little more about that in just a moment. Let me bring it to the conclusion. Verse 12, 13, verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love Isn't faith a wonderful thing? Aren't you grateful for faith, for the gift of faith? It is a wonderful thing. Are you grateful for hope? I am grateful for hope. Both are gifts given to us by God. Yet Paul concludes that of all the virtues of the Christian life, love is the number one, the greatest of all. Why? I'm going to let David Wells, a wonderful theologian, still alive, he will answer this question. And I quote, Faith, hope, and love are frequently mentioned together and in association with one another. But of these, it is love that endures, for faith will be swallowed up in sight, and what we have hoped for will have come in its fullness. But love endures because it reflects what eternally is true of the character of God, and God is love. Paul takes us right back to the beginning of verse 8. Love never ends. And the eternality of love makes love the greatest of all virtues. This is because the only thing that will endure and survive the transition from the finite to the infinite, from the temporal to the eternal, and from faith to sight and from hope to fulfillment is love. You will take nothing else with you. All your gifts will stay. And the only thing that will survive that transition into the eternal state is love. Heaven will be a feast of love. Let me give you two practical insights. Two practical insights from these verses. The number one is this. We must fight against developing a worldly perspective of the Christian life. By worldly, I mean... It is, it is attached to this world permanently. We have to fight against that vision of the Christian life. In many ways, we are like that boy who picked up a quarter. He held it up and close to one of his eyes and he looked at the sun and he concluded and he said, Dad, I think this quarter is bigger than the sun. That would not be a true statement, but it may look like that. And sometimes we focus so much on this earth and we have a difficult time reminding ourselves that this is not our final home, that there is a perfect place of eternal love and that is our final home. This life might be a beautiful life, a wonderful life, a lovely life, but it is nothing compared to what is to come. We must guard our hearts against the delusion that this world matters most. This was the Corinthians' struggle They lost sight of the permanence of love, the eternality of love, and they focused on the immediacy of spiritual gifts. We must live our lives constantly developing an eternal perspective. Don't get caught up in the five seconds. But think about what really matters. Number two, the second practical insight that I want to give you is this. We must remember that our identity is not in our gifts, but in the love of God in Christ in the love of God, in Christ. I will remind you one more time that the only marker of true spirituality, the only marker of true spirituality, the only evidence of spiritual maturity in your life is love, not your spiritual gifts. And if you need to review that, go ahead and listen to last week's sermon. After all, the only thing that you will take with you into God's eternal presence is love. Imagine a world in which you are perfectly patient, perfectly kind, and perfectly selfless. Do you want that world? Do you want a world in which you are perfectly patient, perfectly kind, perfectly selfless? You know, this is yes, this is no. Do you want that world? Now, let me ask you the following question. Let me ask you the following question. Does your life right now show evidence that you want that life then? Are you so concerned with your knowledge that you forget about patience? Are you so concerned with your gifts that you are rude? These are important questions because these questions are about love. Is there anything distracting you from love? If you answer yes, I guarantee you whatever is distracting you from love is a lesser thing for love never ends. You can't say that about anything else. If you're going to fight for anything in your life, fight to develop a deeper love for those around you because that's the only thing that will last forever. Now let me finish. Let me finish. Every time a preacher says that, about 25 more minutes. That's about the average. That's, that's not the case this time. It's about 30. <laughs> Let me finish with a word of encouragement to believers and a word of warning to unbelievers. I know that in every church, in every room, we have both. We have some who have come to trust the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation And we have some that are walking in unbelief. I want to talk to both of you. First, let me talk to believers. Go back to verse 12. The very last part. I have been fully known. Let me encourage you, Christian, with these words. You are fully known by God. Back in chapter eight, verse three, Paul said that he who loves God is known by God. Do you love God, my Christian friend? Do you love God? Then he knows you. He knows you. He knows your struggles. He knows your fears. He knows your affections. He knows your battles. And yes, he even knows all your sins. But he still loves you. You know why? Because you are fully known in Christ. So, yes, you might be broken this morning. You might feel guilty. You might feel even unworthy. But God knows you in Christ. What does that mean? It means the following. You are united to his own dear beloved son. And God loves you as much as he loves his own dear son. Let me tell you one thing. There's no greater message in the world that God loves you, even though he fully knows you. He still loves you because he loves you in Christ. And therefore you have nothing to fear for in Christ, you have acceptance in Christ. You have adoption in Christ. You have justification in Christ. You have sanctification and in Christ, you even have the promise of glorification. You have nothing to fear. You are fully known by God. And if you are a believer in the Lord, Jesus Christ be encouraged. Second, I want to talk to unbelievers, a word of warning, Love rejoices in the truth. So I'm going to speak the truth out of love. This is my word of warning for you, unbeliever. Go back to verse 12. You are fully known. And I understand that I'm repeating myself. But there is a reason for that. I want you to take notice that the very same words that are meant to be an encouragement to Christians ought to be terrifying to you. My unbelieving friend, what makes the difference? The difference is that Christians stand with Christ and through his life, his death, and his resurrection, Christ has earned everything for them. You, my non-Christian friend, by virtue of your unbelief, are without Christ That means that you, at this very moment, are standing before a holy God, completely and utterly alone. And you have no advocate. And it is a God who knows everything about you, every thought you've ever had, every attitude you've ever had, every action you've ever had. He knows it all. You're fully known. But the problem is you are without Christ. And so your sins are exposed. Your failures are all open before an eye, the eye of God who knows all things and God's wrath. God's wrath is pointed at you. God's wrath, his holy anger is directed at you. My unbelieving friend. You are fully known. You can't hide anything from God. So let me ask you this question to you. Unbeliever this morning, who will endure the just penalty that you deserve for your sins? You or Christ? Will you pay for your own sins for all eternity in hell Or will you accept God's loving and gracious provision in Christ? What will you do? He died. Jesus died in the place of sinners once and for all. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So, my question is Will you believe in Jesus Christ today? Would you pray with me? Father, we are convicted and we are grateful, we are joyful but we also mourn because we realize that we too, like the Corinthians, we have a tendency to lose our perspective and we get caught up in lesser things that we forget about the more important thing. Father, we pray for the work of the Holy spirit to be done within us. May love prevail in our lives. For as Paul has told us this morning, love never ends. And I pray for those in this room who are unbelievers, who are walking without the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you will bring conviction deep in their hearts. They will remember that they are fully known. And therefore, every sin is exposed before you, Father. But that there is a Savior whose name is Jesus Christ. And I pray for many to come to faith and repentance and to believe in the sufficiency of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.